Oh, here we are. I'm here in Winchester. Hey. I've got a page. Next turn of me. Glass of water. And everybody smells lovely. Everybody's clean. Oh, Southampton's so different. So lovely. So, so different. Oh, no, it's good to be back with you. Last time I saw the guys, any of you guys from Winchester was when we had our trip to Nepal. That was fun. Wasn't it? We got stranded. Remember that? Travel disaster. In fact, I've just had another travel disaster. Well, not, not, not quite so bad, actually. We had a lovely family holiday in, in Portugal and we were visiting the church there. And uh, You know what it's like. I said to the family, come on, everyone, let's travel light. Let's get some small suitcases, put all your stuff in it, one each, there's six of us, we can't need more stuff than that. Which was fine, which was fine until we got to check-in or to, you know, to the security and my bag was one inch too big. And the security guard said, can't take it. So my mission was then not to do the sensible thing, which is to obviously check it into the hold and pay the money and allow them to take it in the aeroplane. My aim for the next 15 minutes was to try and make my suitcase one inch smaller. So I started bashing it and poking it and kicking it. I ended up ripping off the handle and I shoved it into the thing saying, there it is, it's in. Sorry sir, you still can't take it. So I still had to pay. So, my, I've learnt my lesson now. Always buy a suitcase that is much smaller than the thing. Don't even try it. And certainly, don't stand there ripping off the handles because your wife will say to the man, he's not usually like this. And it's a bit embarrassing at that point. But it's great to be with you. Uh, we're really pleased to be here. As, as you know, now we've moved from Winchester down to Southampton and we love being in Southampton. I think my Jo, my lovely wife, I think her new motto is Veni Vidi Visa. I came, I saw, I shocked. So she's enjoying having Ikea and West Quay at the end of the road. She loves all of that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, my connections with Southampton go back a lot further actually um, because I did used to be a school teacher uh, in Southampton and uh, being a music teacher, one of the things that I loved doing was uh, kind of introducing music wherever we could. And so, from first thing in the morning, we'd start with the register. And so we'd sing the register as an alternative to kind of boring. And, and, and I'd sing it, and um, whoever's name I sung out would repeat or reflect back to me, Yes, Mr. Kilby. So I'd sing something like, Nathan Taylor. And he'd sing, Yes, Mr. Kilby. Or I'd say, Rachel Sanders, and she'd say, yes, Mr. Kilby. And it was wonderful, until one young lad, who was a complete law unto himself, beautiful guy, lovely guy called Danny Sundar, who was away with the fairies completely. And uh, Danny, let, let me put you in the picture, Danny used to email Michael Jackson every single day, and every single day used to come back fed up because there was no reply in his inbox have a go at me, because something must be wrong with the computer. Danny Sundar, there we are, singing the register, you know, Nathan Taylor, Rachel Sundar, and I sung, Danny Sundar, and he stood up on his chair, and at the top of his voice went, Pineapple, Pineapple! Yeah, teaching, it was fun. I did used to enjoy it. In fact, that same class that we had, came to the time of year when we were doing sex education. Now bear in mind this is uh, primary school, special education, so it was very low level sex education. Okay? So basically, one of the tasks that we had was to have a pack of ten cards, and the ten cards had a pen drawing, 
of a male from three months old up to an adult male. And the idea was that the child would take the ten cards and would look at them, look at the features of the pen drawing and put them in order. Now most of the children in the class did the obvious thing. They scattered them out and picked the baby and started with the baby. Or they found the adult male and started with that and worked their way backwards. David was completely different. David picked one out and said, well I know he's seven, and shoved the card on the table. I said, David, you seem very sure. How do you know he's seven? Do you know what he said? His willy is exactly the same size as mine. <laughs> Actually, we all compare ourselves, don't we, to those around us. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning, really. We all work out where we stand and our status by comparing ourselves, how good we are, how successful we are, how rich we are, by comparing ourselves with those around us. That's why men, most of the time, when we meet, like uncomfortably at a dinner party or something, what's our first question? Hello, what do you do? Isn't it? Always, because we want to know Are you more important than me or less important than me? Are you richer than me or am I richer than you? We want to know those kind of things so that we know where we fit in, don't we? It's a matter of perspective. And I want to look at the question today. How good is good enough then? How good is good enough? How do you and I really get ourselves to a place where we're good enough to, to qualify for heaven rather than for hell? And the question we're looking at really is, would God send good people to hell? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I remember one naughty little lad, Jimmy, was winding his mother up, day in, day out, and she said, Jimmy, with behaviour like that, you're never going to get to heaven. And he said, yes, I will, and I know how I'm going to do it. And she said, oh yeah, how? He said, well, I'm going to go up to the door of heaven, I'm going to go in, and then I'm going to go out, and then I'm going to go in, and then I'm going to go out, and then I'm going to go in, and then I'm going to go out. And then God will get so fed up with me, he'll say, Jimmy, look, will you either come in or stay out? And then I'll go in. How good is good enough? Will God really send good people to hell? Mm, Tough, isn't it? First of all, we need to understand what a good person is, I think, because that's what we've got to define our terms in logical ways, don't we? Okay, let's, let's, let's imagine. Okay, I asked you to put yourself in a long line, everybody here, according to how good you've been. Okay, let's do it with a few other people. Maybe at one end you'd have somebody who you thought of as thoroughly good. Maybe Mother Teresa or the Queen or someone like that. And then at the, at the other end of the scale, at the other end of the line, at the not so good end, you have those that you thought were completely bad. We'd maybe place a, an Adolf Hitler or, or a Yorkshire Ripper down at that end. So we're getting the picture, we're doing this line. And I ask you to step up out of your seat and to find your place in the line. Where would you place yourself this morning? Would you place yourself somewhere right at the top? Or would you place yourself further down the bottom? My guess is that you're most likely to place yourself somewhere in the middle. Because you know, don't you, that you're not as good as Mother Teresa or the Queen. But you also know that you're not nearly as bad as those that have committed murders, mass murders. 
And so, you know you're not perfect, but you know you're not evil. So you probably pop yourself somewhere in the middle. And now I want to ask you to draw a line. And you're going to draw the line that divides those who go to heaven and those who do not. That's where you're going to draw the line. You're going to make the call. You're going to make the decision. At what point along this continuum am I going to sever the future of those who are on the other side of my line? Where do you draw the line? Where do you put it? Where does it go? You kind of have to work your way down, wouldn't you? Should Mother Teresa go to heaven? Work your way down. The Queen? Fabio Capello, maybe? Jimmy Savile? I don't know, how far do you go? David Cameron? Simon Cowell? The cast of Big Brother? Where do you draw the line? Where do you put it? Well, it's hard, isn't it? And thankfully, we don't have to draw the line. Because it's actually God that draws the line for us. It's God that decides who gets into heaven and who doesn't. It's his decision. So then we have to ask the question, well, okay, where does God draw the line? If we're not drawing the line and deciding who is good enough for heaven, but God is, where does he put the line? Where does he decide? Somewhere up here between Graham Norton and Harry Hill? I don't know. Where does God decide to put the line? It's a big question. Let me read you a few verses from the Bible, and they'll come up on the screen behind me, that tell us where God draws the line. Here's the first one from Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Here's another one few chapters later in Isaiah. There's nothing wrong with God. The wrong is in you. And your wrong-headed lives have caused a split between you and God. Let me move into the New Testament. When Paul wrote a a letter to the church in Rome, this is what he said in Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous, not one. And then 13 verses later, Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've got a summary of teaching from the Old and New Testament there that tells us where God draws the line. We all have gone astray. There's nothing wrong with God, the wrong is in us. There's no one righteous, not one all have sinned. So whether you were to start at this end with Mother Teresa or at that end with an adult Hitler, all have sinned. So when we're asking the question, will you send good people to hell, we've suddenly woken up and realised that there is no, good, no such thing as a good person. It doesn't exist. The concept isn't a real one. It's an oxymoron. A good person. You can't have it. It's like saying a classy shell suit. It doesn't happen. Or a wife that is on time. It just doesn't happen. Or a husband that understands. It doesn't happen. There's no such thing as a good person in the whole of creation. Not one. 
Not one, the Bible says. Not one person. So that shows us where God draws the line. We're all excluded. None of us make it to heaven. Why not? Sounds a little unfair, doesn't it? Again, it's all a matter of perspective. It depends where you stand. You see, we make judgments about people by comparing them to ourselves. God does exactly the same thing. He makes judgments about people based on himself. Because God has a very different perspective to us. So he makes judgments from his perspective, not from our perspective. If you like, he compares us to him, to himself. So our question asks whether God will really send good people to hell. We're talking about God sending good people, so let's consider him for a moment. We know that there's no such thing as a good person, so we've already excluded everybody in the human race from heaven. It's good news, isn't it? But let's ask a question about God. Would God really send good people to hell? Where does, where does God, if you like, compare? Where does he fit into the line? What are his standards? Let's have a couple more Bible verses. This one from 1 John 1, verse 5. Uh, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's very kind of, well, really the opposite of the verses we read before where we found out there was not one righteous human being, not one speck of righteousness in any of us. The truth is that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So where there's no light in us, there's no darkness in him another verse from Leviticus where we hear something about the character of God. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we get a description of God's character, his, the state of his righteousness there. He's holy, pure, untainted, unadulterated. There's nothing unrighteous. I could pick many more verses that describe what God is like, but it's clear that his standards and his holiness and his character are very, very, very different from us as fallen human beings. All the words in the Bible lead us to believe that God is pure, God is holy, God is perfect. He's very different from anyone else in the line. It just doesn't really compare. And his standards for us are the same as his standards for himself, actually. Which means that all of us, every single one of us in the room today, has failed to meet them. Put your hands up if you're holy and pure. I don't see many hands. Put your hands up if you fall and you know that you fall short of God's standards. Pretty much everyone. We've all failed to meet them. So we've got a dilemma, haven't we? God is holy and therefore can only allow holy people to enter a holy heaven. But there is no such thing as a good and holy person, including you and I. 
which means that in theory no one, not a single person, can avoid hell. So rather than asking, does God send good people to hell? We know what God is like. We know that there's no such thing as a good person. So the question is a very challenging one. I've already mentioned that we compare ourselves to others to work out our own state of where we fit in. But the important thing to understand is that it's not my opinion of you or your opinion of you or anybody else's opinion of you that will matter in this big question about heaven and hell. No human opinion, at the end of the day, will make or break your eternal life. There's only one opinion, there's only one perspective that will really count and that is God's opinion of you right now. Okay, it's God's opinion of you, how he sees you, how he views you. Because he is holy and perfect and you are not, you stand currently separated from God. Your sin has separated you from him and that is serious. Because we're told in the Bible that each time we sin, each time we fall, each time we go against God, what we're doing is we're actually contributing towards our own death. It's a bit like paying a pension scheme. One day we'll get it all back and that lump sum that we'll receive back is death. We will die. Anybody not going to die? I think pretty much all guaranteed. I think the statistics are fairly good. One in every one dies, don't they? Yeah? That's because we fall. It's because we're independent of God. It's because we've rebelled against him. We're actively choosing hell, if you like, each time we ignore God. And I want you to just take a sober moment to consider that. You die... And in an instant, all the things that you love, that are dear to you, that warm your heart, that encourage you, are gone. Every good friendship, every warm smile, every laugh, every significant person, everything in life that just makes you content and happy, all of those things, everything good has suddenly gone. And all you are left with are the things that drain. The things that wear you out. The things that exhaust you. The things that make you fearful. All the bad things are what you're left with. Can you imagine a world where every single person is free to pursue their own individual selfish desires to whatever degree they want, whatever their taste is, whatever it is they're into, they can do it without even considering anybody else. That's what it will be like. That's what hell is. A place of utter selfishness. And it's very real. And it's an eternity that faces each one of us in the building today. Remember, all of us fall short. All of us have gone astray. All of us will be there. Unless. Unless something were to happen that would change God's perspective of us. 
unless something were to happen that would change the way that God sees you and I. Unless something were to happen that would take us somehow from this line. Well, I want to tell you that something has happened to change God's perspective. And at the end of this short talk, what I want to do is I want to ask you a question. Once I've explained what God has done to change his perspective on you, I'm going to be inviting you to swap and to know God personally so that you can be in heaven rather than hell. Okay, I'm going to give you the opportunity at the end of what I want to say today to begin a friendship with him. A friendship that will guarantee you heaven, if you like, rather than that hell that I described of utter selfishness where all the good things have disappeared. You simply choose to become his friend and you come in him. And by doing that, you're choosing heaven. What I'm going to ask you to do at the end is I'm going to ask you, just as you've raised your hand to tell me that you're, you're fallen and you get things wrong, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in exactly the same way if you want to choose heaven today rather than hell. Okay? That's all I'm going to ask you to do. And the reason I'm telling you that now is so that you can begin to ask yourself the question now, do I need to do that? Am I utterly certain that my sin has been forgiven? Am I guaranteed? Am I absolutely 100% certain that I'm going to be in heaven and that I've avoided hell? I'm letting you know so that you can be deciding, is that me? Do I need to do that today? And so that you can begin to gain some courage as I finish speaking. You'll just do it by raising your hand. You see, at the moment, hell could be your destiny. And one simple choice, in one simple moment, in one simple building in a city, can change that forever. That's the beauty of it. It's not very complex. The truth is that God doesn't want you or me to be separate from him. That's not what he desired, it's not what he chose. Actually, he doesn't want you and I to spend an eternity in hell. Actually, it's the opposite. As we heard this morning from the front, God loves us. God wants us. God wants relationship with us. He rejoices over us with singing. That's, just, that's God's desire for us. He made us to know him, to have real relationship with him, to enjoy him, actually. Now, God hates sin, but he loves us enough to do something about it. And he wants to welcome you and I back into that relationship that he decided he wanted with us from the beginning, before our sin caused that severing. Now, when I was living up in Winchester here a few years ago, we, uh, in our back garden, we had a few chickens. And uh, during the winter, the chickens used to have the run of the garden. You know, we used to get their eggs, go out and collect them occasionally, but they could because the kids weren't playing in the garden, we just let the chickens out there run and they'd be up and down the garden, which was fine. But first thing in the morning, they would see the light come on in the breakfast room and they would kind of... and they would run up to the patio doors and they'd sit there and they'd peck at the patio doors, waiting for someone to go out and entertain them or give them some food. And sometimes they would be so excited to see the kids coming down for breakfast that they would stand there and they'd be looking in the window like kids at a sweet shop and they'd just, they'd just poo right there on the patio, right outside the door. It was a nightmare. and it was, in, in one sense, it was fine because the rains would come and wash it away, but the problems really started when you began to get a little pile outside the back door and then one of the kids decided they wanted to go out and play in the garden because they just opened the door and in they go. Now, again, 
all would have been fine if the kids stayed out in the garden. But of course, the kids go out in the garden, they're out there for two minutes, they get cold, they decide they want to come back in again. So they turn around and they start coming back in the house. Now, at that point, uh, my kind of instinct to keep the house reasonably clean and to know what Joe would think if she came in and there was chicken muck all over the back door and the floor, that instinct kicks in and I say, Stop! Now, at that point, I asked them to do something. You see, do you think that because my kids got chicken muck on their boots, it stops me from loving them and wanting them in the house? Well, of course not. But I do want them to take their boots off and leave them outside the back door. Then they can come in and we can carry on with family life. Do you understand? It's a bit like that for us. God can't stand the sin in our lives because he knows what it does to us. It pollutes us, it hurts us and it ends in our death. But God loves us enough to do something about it. Whereas we've kind of grown used to it. We've grown accepting of it. So God had a way to deal with our sin, if you like, so that we could be with him in heaven. He knew that no one in the line, you, I, Mother Trees, Adolf Hitler, none of us, could ever reach his standards, his pure, holy standards. He knew we couldn't do that. So he did something so dramatic and so incredible and so shattering that it broke human history. God commissioned his son Jesus to come to earth, to be born as a baby, to grow up a perfect life, to live as a perfect and authentic man without any sin and to die on a cross as a sacrifice and as a punishment for the sin that you and I have committed. He died on the cross in our place so that we wouldn't have to be punished but we could be forgiven. This was a huge sacrifice for you and I. A huge sacrifice. Let me just tell you a brief story to illustrate the magnitude of what God did with Christ for you. Okay? And this is a story from 1937. I'm just going to have a quick drink of this lovely Winchester water. Mm. Oh, it's got no fluoride in it. It's lovely. 1937. A man called John Griffiths managed to get a job looking after one of the cantilever railway bridges that cross over the Mississippi River. And every day, John Griffiths would control the gears of the bridge to uh, allow the bridge to be raised, to allow the barges and ships to sail through. And one day, uh, he was at work and he'd taken his eight-year-old son, Greg, with him to work. And they packed their lunches and they went off to work, father and son, together for the day. And the morning went quickly and noon approached and they headed off to have their lunch together. And uh, they went down a narrow catwalk to like an observation platform looking over the river, about 50 feet above the river so that they could watch. And as they sat and had their lunch together, John told stories about the ships to his son, Greg. Suddenly they were kind of jolted back to reality, really, because they heard a train whistle in the distance, quite a shrill whistle. And as John looked at his watch, he suddenly realised that it was the 107, the Memphis Express, that was due at any time to come over the bridge. But the bridge 
was still raised for the ships to be coming through. There was still time, it was okay, so he calmly told Greg to stay where he was, I'm just going to go back, do the levers, I'll be back in five minutes. So he did. He went off, and uh, just as he was in the control room, he made one last visual check down at the bridge. And he saw something so horrific that he was frozen. Because instead of staying where he'd been asked to stay, on the catwalk, his son Greg had decided to try and follow his dad back to the control room, had fallen off the catwalk and onto the gears of the railway, of the, of the, of the bridge mechanism. The whistle sounded again. The Memphis Express was hurtling towards the bridge. And this father had a moment in which to decide what to do. And he had to make a choice. He buried his head in his hands and he plunged the lever, killing his own son as the Memphis Express hurtled across the bridge with ladies drinking tea, gentlemen smoking their cigars, children waving out of the window, totally unaware of the huge sacrifice that this man had made so that they could go on in safety. See, God's passion for you involved the same sacrifice. The body of Jesus was crushed and broken so that you could enjoy a safe eternity. That's why it's such an incredible gift, the cross. Because it's the thing that brought us life. Now we can choose, I mean I'm sure those people would have chosen to express something to John Griffiths if they could. The trouble with most of us is we never express our stuff to God. He's guaranteed us an eternal future if we put our trust in him. All we need to do is to recognise and to receive that. That's how much God loves you today. He was prepared to sacrifice his own son for you. And how do you then respond to such a love? What do you say? What do you do? What can you do to acknowledge it? Well, I'm going to tell you right now as I close. I'm just going to ask the band to come up if they could. I just want to point you to perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. It's one that many of you will know from John's Gospel. John chapter 3, verse 16, where we hear this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just consider that verse for a moment because there in black and white is the response that God wants from you and I. Simply to believe in him. God loved the world, gave his only son that whoever believes in him him. We simply have to do the believing. We don't have to be good and get ourselves at the top end of the line. We don't have to go to church. We don't have to be religious. We simply have to believe in Jesus. And by that I mean believing that he was the one who was sent by God 
who lived that perfect life, who went to the cross, who paid the price, who died and then who rose again from the dead so that you and I could have eternal life in him. That's what I mean by believing in him, asking for his forgiveness, for ignoring him, inviting him to come in and to be in charge of our lives. That's what it means to have Jesus as your Lord. You're saying to him, come in, I want you to lead me. You're the boss. I began today by asking the question, will God really send good people to hell? And the answer to that question is simple. None of us is good enough to avoid hell. All of us, every single one of us, is destined for an eternity without God. Our only opportunity is to swap that destiny for one in heaven by having a relationship with the one who is good enough. The only one who has ever been good enough, whose name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. So he is good enough. And when you become a Christian, you're joined somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, with Jesus. You come in because he was good enough. As a friend of Jesus, you get access to heaven because you're coming into heaven sheltered in him because he took God's anger in himself on the cross so that you could go free. It's a bit like this. Here's an illustration. Here's me. Here's God. Here's my sin separating me from God. When Jesus went to the cross, my sin was nailed on him. He took it. He dealt with it. Now I'm free to know God, to have a relationship with him. The same is true for you. The minute you say, Jesus, please take my sin, forgive me, thank you that you died on the cross, I want to know you, I want you to be with me, I want you to be my Lord, please. I want to be in heaven for eternity. I don't want to go to hell. And that relationship begins the moment that you ask. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in 20 seconds time. Okay? You'll be able to receive forgiveness. You'll be able to receive eternal life. As I said, to show me, to show God that you want to do that exchange, I'm very simply going to ask you to raise your hand and then I'll just pray for you from here, for all those who have chosen heaven and I'll help you to make a step of faith towards Jesus. So are you ready to be forgiven? Are you ready for heaven? If Jesus were to come back now, would you be certain that that was where you were going? Can I ask everyone to stand for me? Do you want God's perspective on you to change? Remember, it's not what other people think. So I don't want you to allow pride right now to stop you doing business, if you like, with God. It won't matter what the people to your left and right think about you. It won't matter what the people out on the street or at home think about you. Their opinion doesn't change what happens to you eternally. God's opinion matters. So today, you're seeking God's opinion of you to change. You're saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to be included in Jesus. I want to be included in his, his death and his resurrection. I want to be forgiven. And I want eternal life in heaven with him, hallelujah, forever. Okay, that's what you're choosing. The alternative is a horror worse than anything you and I can imagine. Don't let fear prevent you today. Make a decision now. Okay, in a few seconds' time, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. But just make a decision now. 
If you're not sure, if you're not certain that you're going to heaven, I want you to decide now that today I'm going to raise my hands. Today I'm going to take courage. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Lord, I want to ask right now that you would just strengthen people. Help them to know the rightness of the decision to follow you. Lord, I pray even now that the, the coldness of hell would shake people into the reality of the joy of heaven. Lord, I pray that people will somehow grasp the importance of this moment. I pray you'll give them courage right now. Jesus, you said that your Holy Spirit would draw people to you, would help them to make decisions to follow you. And I ask for that now, that everyone here that doesn't yet know you might find you today in this place.